Hello, and welcome to Caught in the Krauss Fire, a podcast hosted by me, Krauss, a recent Master of Forestry graduate in Michigan's gorgeous Upper Peninsula. This is a podcast focused on natural resources and other environmental topics around Michigan, the U.S., and even the world. I often bring in guest speakers to talk about these topics, most of which are from Michigan Technological University's College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science, otherwise known as CFRES, where I'm also the college's outreach assistant. Each episode, myself and a guest talk about a range of different topics from climate change, jobs in the natural resource field, lessons learned in classes and on the job, research topics, and today, Bradley and I are recording another episode with the current cohort of Master of Forestry students for their Professionalism in Forestry class, taught by my recent advisor, a board member of Michigan SAF and Forest Health Professor, Dr. Tara Ball. Bradley Biggs and I actually met when we were both undergrads at Northern Michigan University, and he was actually my RA when I lived with one of my best friends in Hunt Hall, and I feel like her and I caused a little bit of trouble now and then for Bradley. So while he was there, he got his bachelor's in environmental science and finished from Northern in 2017, and he started the MF program this past fall, expecting to graduate after he attends fall camp this year. He has been in AmeriCorps, worked for the National Park Service and the Forest Service. And today, Bradley and I are going to talk about some of the aspects of recreation as foresters. And I hope that all of you as listeners gain a little bit better understanding of land management and conservation and how that correlates with recreation from the episode today. So, Brad, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, of course. I guess, first, do you want to kind of catch me up on, like, what you've been doing since you were an RA for me back in 2015, 2014, 2015? Uh, yeah. Let's see. So I wasn't an RA my senior year, but then I was still at Northern, and then I graduated, and I went, and I was a custodian at Mason Verde National Park for two seasons. It was interesting. I, I you know, learned about trying to get a job in the park service, and forest service in general it's uh, not super easy to get a full-time job mm-hmm. in those there's you know a lot of national parks essentially shut down in the winter and mm-hmm. they don't need that many people and so it's very hard to find a full-time job and on top of that a lot of the full-time positions are what, what veterans like it's like a point system and yeah. like a lot of veterans actually like are first in line just because they're veteran status yeah and if you're not coming from that to get like an equal footing you have to work 24 months for a land management agency with the federal government with not more than like a two-year gap in between appointments. Mm-hmm. So you have to, and like not every like seasonal position is six months. So, you know, it could have been like five years of seasonal work mm-hmm. to qualify for a lot of the full-time positions available. And so that was kind of a pain. But yeah, I did that with the park service for two seasons. And I did the forest service for a season up in Oregon. Uh, Eastern Oregon, John Day specifically in the Malheur National Forest. I was a biological science tech, which is like a, kind of a generic term they use for like seasonal positions that like, for instance, I did road surveys for timber pre-haul. So okay. me and a guy drove around this huge chunk of forest all summer and would like find the roads on the map or like a GPS and we would drive or walk down them and just write down like you no know, conditions like, is it overgrown? Is it going to need to be like bladed out, you know, like smoothed over? Is mm-hmm. it basically a, a road in perfect condition? Does the road exist anymore? Because sometimes like these roads haven't been looked at since like the 1960s. Yeah. And they're just gone. And that was like, you know, a little closer to what I wanted to be doing. But, you know, I looked at, I was tired of seasonal work at that point. You know, I enjoyed my time in the park service and the forest service, but 
doing that for another, you know, at least probably two seasons was a pain. Yeah. And I was tired of moving all the time. And so I applied for AmeriCorps, Huron Pines AmeriCorps specifically, mm-hmm. and then they link you up with various like conservation groups or agencies. So yeah, you know, there's different types of AmeriCorps. Like there's ones like, you know, you go to underserved areas or like inner cities and you can help teach or you do like more like trail building and stuff like that. Or you can do what I did, which is more like conservation focused, environmentally focused. So I got paired up with like a DNR branch and grayling, Mm -hmm. the grayling forest management unit. And after talking to like actual foresters, because you know, I was looking for a full-time job, you know, they all were foresters and they, you know, there's lots of jobs available the work year round. It's forestry department, you know, pretty much funds itself. Mm-hmm. So it's like the wildlife department, whereas like they have a hard time, you know, they don't need as many people, sadly managing, you know, making, improving habitat for deer mm-hmm. doesn't really bring in revenue. So there's just not as many positions at all. And they all went to Michigan Tech and I figured, well, I have my AmeriCorps grant. And then with the whole pandemic, I'm like, well, I guess now's a good time as I need to just apply and do it. And, here I am. (laughs) So I definitely, you know, part of it was I just wanted like a more stable job, you know, got tired of moving, but that still got me outdoors. Still, you know, something I'm interested in, which is just nature in general, you know, the natural sciences, I guess. Yeah. So when you worked for Mesa Verde, did you like apply for, did you like choose, okay, like that's one of my top three places that I want to be, or did you just like get a job offer as a seasonal there yeah I just applied to a bunch of places and you know Colorado I really like rock climbing <laughs> Colorado is a place to be if you like rock climbing so I figured that would be not a bad place to end up and I applied you know I don't remember how many at this point for more than a few though mm-hmm. at first it was like well I'll get any job and I can like learn about what it's like to actually work for the park service and like trying to make connections and I mean, in the end, it kind of worked out because I kind of learned how hard it is to get a full-time job. You know, I talked to people who have been seasonal workers most of their life. Mm-hmm. Or, like, they go one national park in the summer, then they'll go to, like, Death Valley in the winter because Death Valley is one of the few that stays open in the winter mm-hmm. because it's not 110 degrees yeah. <laughs> in the winter there. Yeah. You know, it did end up being a learning experience, and that was good. And, you know, I just wanted to see someplace new. And at the time, you know, Colorado's nice. It wouldn't be a bad place to live, but I also started to miss like water yeah. <laughs> and, and big lakes and, you know, just greenery. It's just, you know, on that west side of Colorado, it's very arid and desert-like. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, like, it's very pretty, but like at the same time, I wasn't like, I want to say, never felt like home or didn't feel yeah. like, you know, here I like the trees, I like the greenery, and it feels like I'm more comfortable just being like out in the woods. It feels like a natural. Yeah thing whereas like there you know it just felt like a different place and because it was but yeah. yeah so like I kind of got tired of like the desert and you know being far away from families and funny there so yeah yeah absolutely I um applied for permanent forester jobs this year okay. and my top three choices were they were for like the GS9 position mm. which like technically we are qualified for once we have our master's so I, my top three places were all just in like South Wyoming so that mm-hmm. I was pretty close to Colorado because I have a friend in Colorado Springs and I was like basically they're like one of my chosen family and I was like okay if <laughs> shit ever hits the fan while I'm living out here at least they, like this person will only be two hours away and I'll have my back but 
I ended up getting offered a job in the way upper, like, northwest corner of Wyoming mm. on the Shoshone National Forest. And I, and it was for a GS7 position. So I ended up saying no because I would rather have my job here. And that place was like eight hours away from uh, Denver. So I was like, I don't know, I could just stay here and be eight hours from my family that's downstate instead and works just as good. And at least here in Houghton right now, I have people who I know have my back if shit hits the ground. So a little closer to family and home. And- yeah. But yeah, that um, the system that the, the feds use for hiring, like my first year as a seasonal firefighter, I was a GS3, which is the lowest position yeah. that gets paid with the Forest Service. And after that summer, I was hoping that I'd be able to move up to a GS4, but I didn't have that period of time in there where I was technically qualified for the GS4. So that was really frustrating. So for two summers doing hard ass, like firefighting work, working with chainsaws and stuff and actually going out west to Boise National Forest in Idaho. And then I was in Colorado, just southwest of Colorado Springs. Yeah, so I get what you mean about the dry, arid stuff out there, for sure. Everything here, when you look around in the summer, everything in the UP is just green, like literally everything. When you're out there, everything is orange, red, browns. Even like, I mean, they have like a lot of pine trees with green on them, but for the most part, I mean, they're pretty sparse, yeah. And, you know, that's part of it, too, is I'm, you know, I remember, like, I was doing some hike, and there was, like, Little Strawberry Lake. This was in Oregon. And I'm like, oh, you know, there's, like, Strawberry Lake and Little Strawberry Lake. And I saw Strawberry Lake. Oh, this is nice. I'll go check out the little one. It's, like, another mile up further up the trail. And there's, like, a pond. Like, this isn't a lake. This mm-hmm. is, <laughs> you know, it's just funny compared to, like, you know, bodies of water here that are massive yeah my first actually my first couple weeks as a seasonal firefighter in Munising, we had an engine crew from montana and they were so like after you know 14 days they were like we just like miss the mountains we look they 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 got so confused about everything up here because everything's so flat and they were like (laughs) at least when i was like working in my own national forest i could look and i would see a certain mountain peak and know that okay that way is southwest you know and up here they were like i don't even know which direction the lake is because i can't see it and i was like I feel like we're so adapted. Like, I'm literally like, okay, the lake's right over there. I can just look in the direction of the... I always know which way Lake Superior is from here. And it helps it so big, basically, have this big Mm -hmm. of a chance. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much just point in almost any direction, and it's north up here. It's it's weird. It's funny. I remember... At NMU, like I was never worried about getting lost in the woods. Because like at the very worst, I just start walking north and I'll hit 550 mm-hmm. or Lake Superior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so up there, out there, I feel like you'd have to climb up a mountain to get your bearings and yeah. figure out where you're at. If you're not used to it, of course, it's cool. I definitely I do want to work out west in the future, but not I, as a permanent position. But I, you know, probably only want to be out there for five, ten years and and then probably come back to the UP. I don't know, my end goal is to be a professor and I would obviously love to teach here because I love CFRS, but. The one plus side of working for like the federal government and the Forest Service though is like if you get bored in an area, much easier to transfer to another national forest Mm -hmm. as opposed to if you work for like a state agency, you have to like move completely like out of the system into a new system mm-hmm. and that's like one thing i wouldn't mind working for like the forest service in the up it's because like hey maybe 30 years from now 
like I'm sick of the UP. If I have kids that are all graduated and gone, I can go work in other forests for like the last 10 years of my career. Yeah. Or just see something different. Yeah. Whereas like if I work for DNR, then I'd have to completely yeah. move myself. Same thing. I mean, opposite con of that is sometimes to move up in the forest service. Yeah. You have to move. Right now is a good opportunity for everyone, whether they want to move or not, because I think like the generation of folks that are in the forest service right now are kind of coming into retirement. So there's a lot of positions opening up <clears throat> for sure. I've been hearing my dad say that about the state of Michigan for the state of Michigan. Yeah. But he's been saying that for like the last like five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, any time now. Mm-hmm. It's but- <laughs> slow. I mean, it, I would say it's like a 10 year range of, right. you know, when, when things with forestry and natural resources got big in this area and all those younger men were hired for the most part and now are finally reaching that retirement age. Yeah, it's funny. My dad's like 70 and he still hasn't retired, but he's mm-hmm. still is talking about the old people. I'm like, well, you first, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're uh, well past his retirement age, but he's still still working. Yeah. So you are from Roscommon, mm-hmm. Michigan. Pretty familiar with that area. Yeah. Um, I'm from Saginaw and my my dad and I used to go up. We have some property that we help take care of up in Mayo and he has property in Lewiston. So I've been up in that area and we use the state hunting land around there. Lots of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I grew up and I was basically born and raised in Roscommon. So lived in the same house. My dad still lives in the same house. Mm -hmm. Grew up, it was kind of nice because my dad has like eight acres, but then we're right next to a bunch of state land yeah so that was kind of nice to have a whole bunch of woods access to to go goof around in as a kid you know the siblings and yeah so that's probably definitely part of it why i wanted to work for you know get outside is because that's what i did a lot you know it was uh interesting and you got to see a lot of i guess you know sadly no one i guess no one likes logging necessarily but it's like a it's necessary mm-hmm. i guess and you know, got to see the firsthand the whole thing about like people like living on state land, but like I don't know if it's like real estate agents or like you know these periods can be so long they don't think about it, but they might come in a log someday, and that's kind of what happened. It's like right across the road a little bit, yeah, they end up logging, but now you can see like the aspen regenerating. Yeah. Like, you know, it's been like ten years I think since they did it. You know, and the aspen are all above our head. It's kind of funny, like you know they're all this big around and all like grown into each other. So it's kind of a cool area to walk through right now because mm-hmm. it's just quite a bit different than what ever. you were used to growing up right yeah that's cool that's yeah that is really cool to like be able to see for so many years the the changes after they did go through and log in there yeah it's all you know it's all i was surprised with how fast the aspen came up you know as a kid and like you know within a year or two there's like a bunch of trees i thought they were all planted like no aspen just grows yeah. really fast yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, so uh, I guess like you said, some of your interests mm. um, that you're into rock climbing, obviously, mountain yeah. biking, hiking, camping, skiing. All that. How did you get into some of that? Like, was that, I mean, besides growing up in the area, like, did you do that stuff with your parents or like your friends in high school or kind of just started that in college yeah. or? Uh, a lot of it, I, you know, I did, I've done since I was a kid, at least, like, I don't know. It's like, What's the difference between hiking and just going for a walk in the woods, I guess? That's essentially what it is. So, like, you know, living right next to, like, a huge tract of state forest land. I guess you technically are hiking outside all the time, but I got lucky a little bit because Grayling owns its own ski hill. 
the town of Grinling. It's kind of interesting. Hanson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forget the guy's first name, but he was a log baron guy back in the olden days. Mm-hmm. And he owned a bunch of land. And I forget if it was when he died or at some point or another, like all this land he owned transferred. He like he donated it to the state of Michigan for various uses. And like some of it went to like Camp Grayling, which is like a National Guard military base. Yeah, yeah. And some of it's just like state land that's open to hunting, but that also included like Hanson Hill ski area. So it was, you know, it's because like, hey, I mean, it's very tiny. Because of that, it's like very cheap. Grayling government, I think, owns and manages it. So like they had $1 Friday skiing. That's awesome. Right. So it was very nice because, like, as a kid, like, my mom could take, you know, me and my siblings there and just kind of, like, let us go because we can't really go very far. Yeah. You know, when it takes five seconds to ski down the hill, like, she can just watch us. And so, like, it worked out because, you know, I've talked to other people who live, like, right next to, like, super famous ski areas in the Colorado and Oregon who have never been skiing because it's so expensive. Yeah. And if it's, like, you know, two parents or even one parent, but then like a couple of kids, it can quickly add up to like three hundred dollars just mm-hmm. for passes alone. And then on top of that, if you don't go often, that means you're probably gonna have to rent, which is more money. Mm-hmm. And then like do you get lessons? You only go once a year. So like they just never went. And right. so it's kind of worked out well that I could, you know, go twice a week all winter. Yeah. And just ski as much as I wanted. Either you know, the skills are transferable at the yeah. end of the day. The runs are a lot longer, but I mean turning's the same. Yeah. And stopping's the same on any hill. So I learned on a similar, well, I learned to snowboard on a similar hill. Uh, We called it, it was called Apple Mountain, Hmm. which is no longer a ski hill. um, But we used to call it Apple Bump. And (laughs) it was expensive. Like, I remember, I mean, my friend would want me to go so bad with her that she would sometimes, I'd be like, I can't pay for it. You know, I'm like literally in middle school and she'd be like, I'm going to ask my dad to pay for you this time. And you know, like that kind of stuff. And then I finally uh, saved up like my Christmas money one year. And I was like, I'm getting a snowboard. And I got like the cheapest freaking snowboard I could find. But yeah, it's just, it's expensive for sure. Yeah. And that's kind of the pain too, is, you know, I've, it's not so bad if you're just skiing for yourself. If I want to go mm-hmm. visit my friends in Colorado, like it's expensive, but I can make it happen. Or like we can go, like they often run special sales or deals. Yeah. And but like, you know, if I had a family, like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard. So that's why, you know, it's kind of worked out. We have Ripley right there. And then Mount Bohemia has their like weekend season sale or season pass sale. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, I just keep getting lucky. I feel like that I keep ending up in areas where I have easy access to skiing. Yeah. But yeah, it's been lucky and, you know, kind of as I've, you know, talked about my hobbies more and more, I've realized how all of them like kind of rely on public access to land and areas and like coming back to like, you know, public land. I've gotten in a lot, you know, I got into rock climbing when I went to college, but hearing about it more and more since rock climbing is kind of still new, Mm -hmm. like a lot of forest managers on national forests don't see it as a user group mm-hmm. so that's like i you know i donate to the access fund or whatever it is which yeah. they're just an advocacy group like they will sometimes buy areas like rock climbing areas but usually the goal is to eventually transfer the area to like a state government or a state park yeah because they don't want to do it long term you know sadly some like good climbing areas end up on private land or like they'll be like right or like a state park will cut like right through the middle of a nice climbing area mm-hmm. and like half will be on the state park half will be in state land so if it goes up for sale they can like look at it and see if like well if we buy it we can like 
eventually transfer it to the state park. Right. And then it'll be open for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, it would be kind of cool to work for them, but at the same time, like, they're just an advocacy group. Like, they don't need, like, they're not land managers. Right. They just, they're not going out and doing the things. Right. They're trying to make, they're like, they're like the first step of making that happen yeah. for rock climbing. So. Or like, yeah, continue to make sure it can happen if it's like, because some areas get well established, but it's on private land and like the owner's like, well, I'm selling it. And then who knows if the next owner is going to want that. Right, right. So it is kind of how much our, uh, how many of my hobbies rely on, like, you know, talking to forest ma land managers. Cause like, I remember reading, there's like some, there's not like a national policy or anything like that for like the forest service about rock climbing. So a lot of it comes down to like individual forests and how they, see rock climbing like you know you gotta talk to them or like you know they have public outreach meetings and all this and that and try to like you know let them know that like you know rock climbing is like a big user group mm -hmm. and they like sometimes like policies get put into place about like if it's allowed or using it or like sometimes rock climbers do it for themselves by like trashing an area yeah <laughs> which is not good yeah but know that like you know that sometimes like they need support like silver mountain in the up is a good recent example i don't know if you've been there mm -mm. it's called silver mountain it's right by the sturgeon river gorge okay back i don't know, I want to say like the 30s 40s they thought there was silver in the mountain very creative naming mm -hmm. and they tried to mine for it but even last year before there's nothing yeah and like the mine shaft is still there but it's all got like barred off and all that yeah stuff. but there's a lot of rock climbing there and the Forest Service recently, like, I, you know, people have been climbing there for a while, but just recently, like, for local Forest Service is like, well, maybe it's time we build, like, a real trail mm -hmm. to the base of this climb and, like, put up some signs so people know where there's parking and right. all this and that. And, like, now there's a porta potty out there, and, like, maybe someday an actual bathroom might get put out there. Yeah. But, like, Access Fund was a part of that. Like, they, like, talk to these managers and, like, help hire outside trail builders or at least people to come in and talk to them about, like, where the trail would be best. And that's kind of, I guess, the perks of if I do work for the Forest Service, I would kind of know a little bit about it and be able to talk to the, uh, for, like, the actual forest manager people. Yeah. It's interesting because, like, I mean, I've never done rock climbing. Like, I've <laughs> barely ever even climbed rock walls in gyms. How dangerous of a sport would you say it is? Um, you know, it's, I think it's one of those things can be as dangerous as you want it to be because like there's different styles of it. Mm -hmm. There's like what's called bouldering, which is you just climb standalone boulders. Mm -hmm. And usually that's not too bad because you don't get more than like, you know, see like, you know, ceiling height off the ground, mm -hmm. but that can, that can vary wildly and people buy pads. So if you fall on them, you're pretty much going to be fine. But other times it can be, you know, if you don't place it right and you miss it when you fall, it's not like people are dying, you know, like you break an ankle or land on your wrist wrong yeah. or like you know, miss the mat and like yeah. hit your head on something. I imagine getting lots of scratches from like sliding <laughs> on the rocks. That's uh, definitely happens too. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, hurting your ankle or wrist or something is pretty standard for a lot of sports. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say it's common. I've only really known one person who really hurt themselves okay. while bouldering. And like it was, there was, it was a higher one. And I think they, I don't remember the exact condition, but they landed weird in their ankle and they yeah. broke it. Okay. And then there's like other style, you know, you get higher up, you know, I don't know how in depth about rock climbing want to get, but you know, there's, there's another, you know, it's called sport climbing where like someone goes in beforehand and like bolts to the wall Yeah. and you like clip into them with your rope. And like, if you fall, you'll swing, but like the next bolt below you will catch you. And if the person, you know, depending on how they bolted it, 
you're not going to fall very far and it's very common. It's just a part of the sport is falling. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's gotten like really serious hurt besides again, they fell too far and like stuck their leg straight out when they swung into the wall and again hurt their ankle, but they were fine like two days later, just yeah. swelled up for a minute. And so, you know, accidents, it feels like one of those things where accidents aren't super common, but they can go, it can go really, really wrong really <laughs> fast. If uh, someone, you know, people get overconfident, you know, if you get yourself in over your head while mountain biking, I guess worst comes to worst, you can just walk your bike down the trail, right? right. But, uh, you know, rock climbing can screw up, you can fall down a cliff. Yeah. And, but then again, I feel like I've known a lot more people who have like torn ACLs while skiing or like broken collarbones mountain biking. Yeah. Than, you know, all the people I've known rock climbing who have never been hurt. Yeah. But at the same time, I guess if an accident does happen, maybe it's just higher odds that you're just higher, you're just in a more precarious situation. (laughs) And so it'll go a lot worse. Yeah. Being someone who doesn't do rock climbing, I feel like it's quite dangerous. So like when you're talking about, you know, that there's not really a huge user group right now. I mean, it's definitely getting bigger. Like I've met more people in the past two years being here than I have ever met before who enjoy rock climbing and I think part of that there's like a lot of the geologists here that do rock climbing yeah it's like it's interesting because from like a recreation aspect I would much rather put signs out and give people access and offer classes or some like something so that at least people know what they're doing and like it's a little bit more safe I guess and you know if if there's a spot that's designated okay this is a rock climbing area if you do get hurt it's a lot easier to be like hey I'm at this rock climbing area 911 send an ambulance (laughs) right now where it is yeah exactly rather than like if you're just out free climbing somewhere where it's not super common and you know you're in the middle of nowhere yeah i know there's been i know there's like something like one of the arguments right now is like wilderness areas like i don't like the exact rule but i've always been told like nothing with like wheel bearings mm-hmm. <laughs> so like you know you can't even take a bike or anything like you have to be and like so it comes down to like do those bolts that people drill in does that count in a wilderness area because you can do it with hand drills just using like a hammer right and like a turning like you a drill you turn yourself like that's how they used to do it back in like the 50s and 60s yeah and there's like, you know, does that belong in a wilderness area? And because there is also forms of rock climbing where like you don't do the bolt-in thing, like you take your own gear. There's different varieties, but you're like placing your own gear in like cracks in the rock. Mm-hmm. And then it's the same thing, like you're clipping your rope to that. And if you fall, like that catches you. Yeah. That's pretty common too. But then does that have a place in a wilderness area? If you can't bring bikes, like sometimes that does damage the rock. But like at the same time, if it's in a wilderness area, how many people are actually realistically going to be doing that? Because usually those are quite a hike in. Mm-hmm. There's some rock climbing gear that like you can pull on levers and it rotates. Like does that count? Then is right. like something mechanical. Does that count in a wilderness area? Do these belong in these protected areas essentially? And on top of that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you can damage the rock. You know, it's loose and you pull it down. Mm-hmm. Some people aren't huge fans of that, which I understand. Mm-hmm. But like then again, anything else, you know. It's like how much of an impact, you know, just by humans existing in this environment, we're going to have some form of impact, but like how much of an impact do we want? Yeah. 
on my way in this morning listening to a podcast, their focus was more backcountry camping mm-hmm. versus like the front country camping, they call it, and how the environmental impacts that it has like compared to each other. So we can like tie this into the like rock climbing in the wilderness. They were advocating for essentially making better policies and better rules and regulations in parks and like on the national forest for dispersed camping and backcountry sites because so they were advocating for less backcountry camping and more designated sites set up to Mm -hmm. go camping because then ecologically speaking you're only affecting one small area whereas if you're dispersed camping then you're affecting more areas that had not ever had traffic before have had minimal traffic just thinking about that i'm like i feel like it almost breaks out even especially backcountry campers typically don't trash an area and i mean there are definitely people who who do and that obviously has an environmental impact on things but for the most part people that i know at least are all very conscious of the environment and the impacts that they can have on the environment from leaving shit out in the woods yeah so i feel like dispersed camping and just you know setting up a spot for a night or two and being in the middle of nowhere and cleaning up after yourself isn't going to have a huge ecological impact but then if you take that out of the equation and have people going to specific sites that are used over and over again those sites are going to be degraded by people and it's less of an area but now it's more impact in one area so i'm like where does that even out and then you know like you don't want to take away like backcountry camping is an experience that a lot of people want to to have like they don't want to be in a designated area so it's like where is the line with that like how do we manage especially with the like leave no trace stuff i think a lot of people are really serious about that and i think that has been a huge positive influence on backcountry camping for sure yeah it's definitely complicated because you know i think about that sometimes too is like everyone wants like a just like you know their own little spot where it feels like you're out in the wilderness by yourself either if like even if other people go there it feels like no one else has been there there's like a baseline effect humans have just by like existing in an area you try to sacrifice one area specifically to just basically (laughs) get degraded at the but hopefully keep everything else a little bit nicer or you like let people disperse and hope to spread it out mm-hmm. and you know it might be one of those things where you need to it depends on the environment in like you know in the desert for instance like they always have the don't bust the crust thing like stay on the trails don't i don't know if you've heard that slogan while no you're i have there. not it's like definitely in like western colorado and utah the soils there like they get i forget what it is it's like a not a fungus it's like a little like microbial algae maybe type thing mm-hmm. not algae but it grows on the dirt and it's like black and it takes a long time to grow because it's the desert mm-hmm. and it helps like stabilize the soil and it's like the first step in like getting other plants to grow there because they stabilize the soil and like die. I really wish I could remember um, what it was actually made out of. But the point being is then like you step on it and like you set it back 10 mm-hmm. years. And so like, it's always like a big deal. It's like never go off the trail. You know, like one of those where dispersed camping might be worse because instead of like, you know, literally just stepping on it might screw it up Mm -hmm. spreading everybody out of this area you're just going to be you know screwing up these more areas yeah whereas like maybe something in michigan where 
things are a little more resilient slash used to disturbance. It's not mm-hmm. really an issue, just have people spread out. Right. Yeah, and if you, you know, step on a trillium, like, <laughs> I guess I don't know exactly if trilliums come back right away, but I feel like they're pretty resilient little right. flowers. So, you know, you step on it and continue walking and it's probably going to be fine the next day. Especially in Michigan, where like really no part of Michigan has been untouched. Like we right. all got logged over in the late 1800s. Like there's not any pristine. Well, I shouldn't say not any, but you know the places that are like pristine are few and far between. So is it really all that big of a deal to have one do this first camping? Right. But you know I've thought about it too. It's like there's like a limit. Like everyone wants to like have their own private like little cool spot in the woods. Like you know this is a hypothetical example. Well, you know if you get a swimming hole or like some like little you know creek or whatever you like swimming at you and your friends go to it you don't really have a hiking trail you just walk through the woods it's not a big deal because like only 10 people go there a month Mm -hmm. but you know over the years this word gets out more and more people start showing up and then it ends up on like instagram and all of a sudden you have maybe hundreds of people coming in a week yeah and it really starts to degrade it and you know then land managers have to step in when there's a few people you might have not needed to build a designated trail but now that so many people like you have to like, you know, close off all the other trails, like build a real hiking trail, which might is going to be a little more impact the foot trails, but there are so many of them, like, you know, it balances out. Yeah. And then you got to, you know, maybe restrict access to only, you know, X number of people and do like a permit system. And then you have to build places where people can access the water, like maybe some type of dock or a ramp or, you know, yeah. all this and that, because I think people are eroding the riverbank and all this sediment was getting in. Yeah. And it's like, everyone wants like kind of wilderness experience, but after a certain point, like you can't have that anymore because the place is just getting degraded so heavily. Yeah. I'm uh, thinking of this one place specifically up on Lake Superior over towards Munising. It's owned by the Forest Service and they maintain like the road and everything to get in there. But pretty much when I first went out there in like 2015, so not it was just starting like the word was just starting to get out about mm-hmm. this this place where people would go disperse camping and it had been used pretty often before like by the time i was back there like you could definitely tell that there were five or six specific spots where people would always set up their tents and stuff but then like word just started getting out about this place and they ended up basically i think the forest service and the locals kind of gave up on maintaining the road to go in there because they thought it would deter people. It's a bad road going in there. It's like, it'll get so washboarded and then there's this big, huge dip where like in the spring when the snow is melting, it is, I mean, like three feet of water. It's it's insane. Like you cannot go through it with a vehicle. And part of the reason that they don't make the road accessible is so that less people do go in there, especially because it's right on the lake shore too. Oh yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, so you have this washboarded road and then you have some kid with his shitty car that wants to drive down it. He's making all this, his car is rattling (laughs) around and like, that's disturbing the animals and everything. And like, then he's going to get to this part of the road and try to go through the water. And then he's going to get all this shit from the bottom of his cars in the water that's going to go into the groundwater. So it's like, yeah, it's like at what point do we decide, okay, we need to react to this? Or like the podcast I was listening to this morning, they were talking about being proactive. The example that I thought of when they were talking about that is Munising again. Like Munising, I don't know, five years ago or so? It was like the year after I stopped working there. Um, the National, Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore was featured on like 
some National Geographic huge thing and whatever in the next summer they had millions like I think it was one million visitors and they had never had that many people before and the town of Minasing was not prepared for that the trails and like parking lots and everything they were not prepared for that and like now I think of okay one of the reactions to that was that they made a roundabout in the town to make it a little easier but I'm like if they had known that they had six months before this would go on public, you know, like everyone yeah. in the world is going to see this, would they have made the roundabout before then? Would they have, you know, hired crews to come in and make better trails and put more signs up? And would they have hired more people that summer to work for the park, ser- like the park service? Because they were just slammed all summer. Mm-hmm. And I think by now they kind of have it together because now they're expecting a million visitors a year but like that was definitely a a reactive approach to it when I think that it easily could have been they could have proactively been ready for that huge (laughs) summer of people yeah Yeah, absolutely insane I'm so glad that I was not there that summer yeah and that's kind of the issue is too is you want to encourage people to like you know people want to take care of places they feel they have attachment to and like their public lands, you want people to get out and use them. Same time, you know, some places physically do not have the space to expand. Mm-hmm. Like, I know like Zion National Park, like I visited there in like November and it was still pretty crowded, but like, uh, like but just because of the way, like where it is and the cliffs everywhere, they literally have nowhere to expand to. Right. Like they can't build more parking lots. They can't like or they have to build them way out and then bust people in mm-hmm. and it's this whole thing it's like you know you gotta start limiting visitors which sucks because mm-hmm. you don't want to but at the same time like what else do you do yeah that's what i'm pretty sure the forest service and park service did up in unison this year was when you could start reserving stuff online and whatever they put like a limit they put a cap on how many people could reserve spaces <coughs> right. and um i think you actually have to purchase like a pass now to get in I think the goal of that obviously is to create revenue to hopefully improve more, but also maybe deter people from using it, which also sucks because then it's like not accessible to people who can't afford it. You know, like locals who have it in their backyard who aren't going to want to buy that pass because that's literally their backyard and they've been doing this for years. So it's a way to manage uh, all of those users, but I don't think that it is the end yeah the best way to do it and hopefully they figure something out with that yeah i know some places do like a lottery but even then that's like you might go years without winning it mm-hmm. and you know depending on how many people they let in so it's like you got to hope for the best and you get it and you got quick plan a trip and mm-hmm. so i don't know if that's exact you know it's one of those things it's hard because something you know none i guess no solution is going to really work perfectly mm-hmm. you know sometimes i think about that too is like just the fact of like improving it so the people who are you like can attract more people like if all of a sudden you're like wow people have been making their own parking spots we gotta like make a real one so they're not eroding everything or like mm-hmm. compacting all this soil as long as you have a nice parking lot it might attract more people who previously wouldn't have bothered to try right and then like it kind of builds on itself but it's like you know it's yeah it's a interesting i guess it's hard system. yeah hard to balance <laughs> Because, I don't know, speaking of rock climbing, you know, like, there's some BLM land in Utah that's, like, super popular for rock climbing. Again, you know, when rock climbing was smaller, it wasn't as big of a deal. 
you know, they kind of let people do whatever, but now that it ex- has exploded so much, you know, people using the bathroom, like that takes forever to grade in the desert. Mm-hmm. And so then they had to install a bathroom and like they made parking lots better. Cause again, you don't want to just be like ruining the soil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like, there's this one campground that's like a little harder to get to. You need at minimum, like a Subaru, mm-hmm. you know, all wheel drive, some clearance, like my sedan would make it. Mm-hmm. And there's a little campground area and you know there's no bathroom or anything but climbing has been getting so popular that people are more and more people are driving out to this little campground and they're taking cars that necessarily wouldn't have made it before and like the road keeps getting wider because like there's like little like rocks you had to drive up and over yeah and so instead of going over them they start swinging it wider and wider and then you know you hear rumblings or like like blm might be looking to either like close it down or like restrict access or put in a bathroom but then people don't want a bathroom because then like then it's a real campground and then mm-hmm. you gotta pay to use it or something like that it just turns into this whole thing where like you know a lot of people want to feel like they're getting that backcountry experience but sometimes like, after a certain point it's not anymore and, like, yeah you lean into it and then just accept that a lot of people are using this and you gotta minimize their damage yeah or do you just hope that like what the other forest service did if you leave the road rough enough it keeps enough people out so. I think I would say that it, it does not keep people out. <laughs> <laughs> it um, might keep some people out, but not enough. And there's a certain type of person out there who doesn't always think that far ahead or like not used to driving down rough dirt roads and realize they're, you know, I know my sedan can't make it down some roads. But mm-hmm. like, what do you mean my sedan can't make it down any road? Like it's on a GPS or like people told me to turn here mm-hmm. and then not realize that they've got three feet of water they might be driving through. Yeah. And so then, but then they swing around it and the road keeps getting wider and like, you can see that. Yeah. Yeah, that place that I am missing is like a perfect example because on the other side of the water, there's this tiny, we could not fit our engine through, but like cars could go through on the other. So it was like this three foot drop where all the snow melt just collects in there. And then this tree with its roots going into that three foot drop and then next to it is a little bit higher and it's so but you you have like this tree and then another big tree on the other side so people would squeeze their cars in there and then like we went through and we're like oh other cars have been through here not truck like engines type six (laughs) firefighting engines so we literally squeezed through this thing and like broke a couple branches and stuff as we were doing it and other people are doing the same things I bet you that path is wide or not. I bet you somebody has probably cut down the tree that was in the way. Even if you don't, all that root compaction might kill it anyway. (laughs) So it kind of just turns into like, yeah. I don't know if there's like a term for this process or like, I'm sure other people have talked about it because like it's, it's a thing. And, you know, that's kind of what was happening at Silver is like people would park in this parking lot because there's like a hiking top or hiking trail at the top that's not where the rock climbers want to go you want to go to the bottom so like a lot of people admit there's like a bunch of hiking trails crisscrossing all over yeah and so like that was part of what they did is they just like threw a bunch of brush and all that on top of these other hiking trails and like all right we're just gonna make a hiking trail all these little ones mm-hmm. we can like let those grow back over and just kind of sacrifice this little strip to get to the where and then like erosion was happening because you know it's on a slant yeah and so people stand around so then they're talking about do we start installing wood yeah um to like help stop erosion and then like or do we start building like stone steps up and it's like how much like yeah it's not gonna be like natural anymore but like 
tree roots are getting exposed because so much right. erosion is happening. Yeah. yeah, it's a whole science in itself. Stuff that I don't think about as much from my side of forestry, you know? Like yeah. I, I haven't been into the recreation side of things as much. Um, so it's really cool to like, just think about that stuff and hear yeah. your perspective on it. Yeah, and like even Mesa Verde, so many cars, like we'd run out of parking spots. Yeah. It's like, like you can drive, like, I guess, like, and then, you know, people try to pull off on the side of the road and then like, you, know, you can't do that because you're crushing, you know, fragile desert wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. I think leave no trace movement was pretty big for quite a while, but now I definitely have been hearing a lot less about it. Yeah. And I think that, like, I think that it's almost inevitable that people are going to utilize you know natural resources for recreation and all these ways that we've been talking about and that it's going to just continue because especially like after the pandemic like everyone just kind of i feel it seems like everyone wants to be outside and like going and doing stuff like that lately so i think maybe putting a, a bigger push on like leave no trace might also help yeah like just users realize okay this is why we're not supposed to step off of the trail like because if they don't have a background in natural resources like we do like it doesn't they don't think about that stuff yeah just education and public outreach and you know if one person does something it's not necessarily a big deal but if you get a thousand people doing it right it adds up yeah absolutely i'm sure education is part of it just little stuff that people could read as they're hiking that's like hey this plant that's super delicate is here here's what it looks like here's what happens if you step on it and here are the ecological impacts of that and this is why we're telling you don't step off the trail (laughs) right and if you do you'll get fined a million (laughs) dollars yeah i know outreaching the public and then i know invasive species sadly also like they catch rides on people's shoes and mm-hmm. pants and camping gear and yeah again just like telling people like make sure your stuff is clean either put it through the wash or like you know brush it off or just look it over and make sure there's not like seeds yeah attached to you yeah i like seeing the boot brush things yeah. at some places and stuff i think that's really cool again an easy way to mitigate invasive species entering an area yeah I think a lot of it, what it comes down to, at least for me, is like, you want to feel like, you know, you're going on some cool adventure no one's seen before, very few people have seen before. And, you know, you get this, like, this little cool place that only you and a few other people know about. And once the agencies or whatever management has to come in and start managing for that, it kind of loses that fun little private yeah. adventure thing. It's like, well, everyone goes here yeah. and does this. Like, yeah. You know, some people all get resistant to, like, the, any, like, improvement. Yeah. Or upgrading of roads or parking lots or signs or campgrounds or facilities yeah absolutely which you know is a necessary evil sometimes Mm -hmm. but it's also there's just so many aspects to it like accessibility literally for just human beings like there's cool areas that you and i are privileged enough to see because we have a car that can make it through and we have the money to pay for a pass and we have in the, right area. the ability to <laughs> climb you know this weird staircase looking thing that was created by roots yeah you know and there's people that can't do any of those things so then it's like should we make it accessible so that more people can use it and get this opportunity because there are people who are literally like 
there's so many barriers up for people that can't utilize right. it. Start charging too much money to get into parks, then people, a certain class of people, just don't have access to it right. anymore. Right, yeah, yeah. It's a hard, I mean, it is like a, a science and like a, you know, you're never going to be able to please everyone. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you going into your career obviously have all the right intentions <laughs> and are doing everything that you can to do what is best in some people's point of view. <laughs> yeah, and, try. Know, yeah. And, you know, I guess it, it benefits to, like, if they're going to, like, you know, being active in the area you're going to manage, like, you know, definitely give you at least, like, know where the groups are coming from and, like, knowing what their goals are is definitely helpful to help see it eye to eye. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a 60-year-old land manager who rock climbing wasn't a thing and you're a kid and all of a sudden, like, you hear about this rock climbing and they're making their own trails and, like, there is a thing where someone cut down a tree at silver to make room for rock climbing. You're not supposed to just be cutting down trees. Right. Your, your reaction be like, no, shut it down. Like, I don't know what they're doing, but no. Yeah. <laughs> and so like have someone who like, well, you know, a lot of people do this and like, you can like, you know, they shouldn't have done that, but like it's a significant number of people. Yeah. It's not just like five people. Right. Wrecking yeah. stuff. <laughs> and one other thing would be like funding for all these management zones, but yes. I, I can just be a lot of like conservation zones used to be funded by hunting permits. Mm -hmm. But hunting for like the last 50 years has been on a steady decline. Yeah. So that'll be another fun problem is like, how do we pay for these? Cause you know, you have to pay to get in the parks, mm -hmm. but at least like Michigan state parks, it's only $11 the whole year. Right. Yeah. At least, or 10, I think, even if you get it on like your license plate when you're renewing your- Yeah, something like that. And like, you know, the state parks pretty much fund themselves, but like conservation areas that you don't have to pay to go to, if they lose, they're losing a lot of like their hunting base and like, you know, who should pay for that? Should like, we start charging more for the people at state parks or like start charging more for people like, you know, there's certain hiking trails that are owned and maintained by the state, but like you don't have to pay to use them, or like you technically do, but no one actually enforces it, so no one does. Right. Yeah. And so. And like donation things that are up, like on the um, what's the the trail network for like mountain biking and stuff yeah. in Marquette. They have little like donation things where it's like, okay, if you don't have a pass, then you should be paying five dollars a day or whatever. Even the the tech trails up here. Like, you know, I, as students, we can use them, whatever, but then, like, public is also allowed to get a pass, but I'm like, this is literally in their own community. Why do they have to pay to use this? And I think a lot of people aren't opposed to it because they understand, but also our people, some people, I feel like, just go out and don't pay for it, and yeah, yeah, I don't, it's... Yeah, it'll be interesting because like yeah, hunting paid for a lot of con or I don't want to say conservation because you hunt in them but like they're huge tracts of land just set aside and like you know people hunt in them but that's it and the funding for that kind of dries up yeah then we gotta look at how to how do we get the revenue from other places right. and they uh, you know people talk about trying to get more people into hunting but that's hard because if you don't have someone to teach you when you're young it's hard to get into yeah one of my worries lately has been like with climate change i feel like pretty soon the up is going to be so much more populated because it's going to be one of the last places with that's not burning up it's going to be access to a lot of fresh water yeah exactly <laughs> which like, if you're in a drought stricken you know utah yeah yeah exactly like stuff like that and i i think like more people are going to be moving up this way and it is a nice area and everyone knows that the up is like this you know, more primitive backcountry yeah, location yeah. and they're going to start building houses everywhere. And the reason why people, a lot of move, people move here is then going to be lost because like, you know, I wouldn't mind living in the UP. I grew up in a rural area and mm -hmm. I like Marquette. 
and you know holding and they're but I'm part of the issue is <laughs> right 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 even though I guess I'm from Michigan I'm only an hour and a half south of the bridge but yeah. still like I'm contributing to like you know but makes a lot of people like the UP right i.e the lack of people might change as yeah word gets out that you know we're not 110 degrees in the summer and you don't have to worry about wildfires every year yeah so i think it's going to be an ongoing thing for our whole entire lifetimes and probably definitely generations after us too i mean things change hobby different sports ebb and flow in popularity and you know what works with the current number of people doing whatever thing that might not work yeah. 30 years from now is another new sport yeah. shoots up in popularity or another one dies out or you maybe know, lots of people will, move to an area yeah. maybe there will be a huge just resurgence of e-gamers and then <laughs> no one will be outside anymore and everyone will just be living in basements playing well. games all day if it's 110 degrees in the summer, I don't really blame anyone yeah, for like yeah. not being super psyched to go outside. That's true. That's true. Like, man, it hits 90 degrees and I'm dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I mean, honestly, that's part of the reason why I wanted to come back to Michigan too. Is like, hey, housing's a lot cheaper. I'm gonna probably be able to afford a home in Michigan as opposed to everyone wants to live in Colorado, yes. Utah, and California, and yeah. Texas. And, I mean, those places, the mountains are great. Obviously, there's a reason why everyone wants to live there. Yeah. But housing like, is getting so crazy that it's like, well, I can afford a home in Michigan and I like water, so. Yeah, yeah, housing is absolutely insane out there. I know, like, Jackson Hole, Wyoming has something similar. It's like one of those places, like, they have nowhere to expand to. They got, like, mountain on one side and national park on the other. Like, there's just no place for them to build more housing. And, like, there's, I talked to a guy who lived in the area. He's like, there's jobs, but there's no place to live. Yeah. You have to live hours away yeah, in the middle of absolute nowhere. And then you like hope that maybe the place you're working for has employee housing, which some do. Mm-hmm. I know we've got a little away from rec- yeah. <laughs> a little away from recreation, no, but awesome. it all turns into the same thing as lots of people, and you got to find a way to manage yeah. them. Yeah, and but, it's recreation is a really cool aspect too because it's about more than just managing the land. It is a, you do have to find ways to manage the people using the land. You know, we can do the science that we know from your environmental science degree and the Master of Forestry to say, okay, here are the impacts that people are making on these trails. But it's a whole different social science to figure out how to stop that impact from happening. So actually get rules people will follow. Yeah. And because you don't want to like, easiest way to get rid of human impact is just be closed off completely. No one can do it. But then, you know, people don't want to, have their taxes go towards something they don't get to use right. enjoy. And plus it helps them feel a sense of attachment. Like maybe like, you know, me growing up in the woods, like I like the woods, I want to help, you know, make it nicer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because, you know, I got to feel a sense of connection to the land as a kid. And like, you know, if you can do that for more people growing up, more more people willing to like fight against climate change, fight for like you know, more nature preserves and yeah. all this fun stuff. Yeah. So we'll see. It is like a good answer though. Like I had people like, well, why do we even need to manage the woods? Just let it do its thing. It's like, well, people like to use it and they like to use it for different things. And we've kind of jacked it up so much at this point that we got to try to put things back together or make sure they don't get worse. Mm -hmm. And that's a good note to (laughs) When you graduate, what do you think you're going to do after that? You know, we'll see. Because working, we had someone come in from like the 
bird conservancy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and she talked about, you know, well, helping like people manage their land for birds. And like, also, if you're managing for birds, you're also managing for other things. Right, like, right. Because it turns out ecosystems pretty inter- interconnected. Who yes. Knew? Yeah. Birds are also, I mean, like a pretty good indicator species of how the, right. uh, how the environment in that area is doing. Right. And doing something like working for the Nature Conservancy, they, uh, you know, they own land and they turn it into parks. Working for a group that like just want to like preserve the land, and you know, they allow I think you know hiking and whatnot yeah. would be nice. But sadly, those jobs are very few and far in between. They just don't need that many people. Slash, they're a nonprofit. Right. Can't afford to hire that many people. Right. So while that would be nice, but more realistically, it's probably going to be like the DNR and the Forest Service. Yeah. And Do you think you'll uh, get back out west at all? As of now, I don't have any plans to. Like I said, like I would not mind ending up in the Marquette area, like yeah. Ishpeming, Bonnie. I NMU, you know, I really like going, living in Marquette when I went to NMU. Mm-hmm. Owen's nice, but I think Marquette's just a little bit bigger, which yeah. is nice. And it's a little like it's two hours closer to my parents, which yeah. is nice because I do like to see them occasionally. Yeah. And it's the difference between like a four-hour drive and a six-hour drive. That's nice, and Marquette's got a bigger hospital, and yeah. anything. Our crowd of people, too, I would say. Like, people up here, especially since we're in the forestry building, mm-hmm. you know, we're around people who like to do the same things that we do, but I think in Marquette, as even a criminal justice major, I knew so many people that wanted to go out and use the woods and, like, use the area around there. When here, I think there's a lot of, there's a big population of students on tech's campus who don't care to do stuff like that they came here just for engineering yeah (laughs) they came here just for engineering and you know maybe they'll get out on the ski hill with friends one time this year and that's about it but marquette it's like you literally just meet someone at black rocks and you're like oh what'd you do today and they're like oh yeah i just biked the whole nicolmanon trail system and then i went to the ski hill for a few hours and <laughs> did a few jumps and yeah. now I'm just here drinking a beer I'm gonna ride my bike home I'm like yeah that's my kind of people yeah also a lot less hilly so my car can actually make it up to my home in the winter so that is nice yes, I've had more <laughs> trouble this year than any year that I've lived in the UP with my truck yeah. Uh, getting places. Sure. Like, oh, you're living in the UP? Is your sedan going to be fine? You know, I lived in Marquette for four yeah. years. I'm like, it's not going to be an issue. I've never, and then I move here and I have an issue. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because, well, I mean, it's just the hills are steeper here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just kind of funny where I'm like, this is like the first time I've not ever been able to make it up a hill in my car. Yeah. Or like, even like trucks. I've had trucks outside. I can just hear them spinning their tires yeah. up the hill. Probably mine. But yeah, awesome. Well, cool. Thank you so much for being on the show. This was like, I'm really, I, it was a definitely a different perspective of environmental um, stuff that I, I don't usually pay attention to, I guess. Yeah. So it was really nice to talk about that recreation besides, aspect. Yeah. Just besides uh, the old boards and cords, as yes. they say. Yes. You know, forestry is such a big field. I've, you know, people are like, well, what do foresters do? Like, well, <laughs> lots of different things. And anything from just like basically a tree farmer to like, you know, trying to rehabilitate like a super polluted area and like turn it into a nice, healthy forest again. Yeah. Like, it could be a lot of things or like trying to improve bird habitat or yeah. trying to like help a hunting club have better hunting. Like, it can be so yeah. many things. Yeah, there's a ton of ton of options out there for sure or yeah city parks yeah urban forestry stuff yeah 
Cool. Well, thanks, Bradley, for yeah. being on the show. And to the listeners, I hope that you learned a little bit about recreation and obviously quite a bit about rock climbing. <laughs> and um, I hope that you enjoyed your time getting caught in the Krauss fire. Thanks for listening.